Hey, thanks for checking out this sermon. It's designed to help you take your next step with Jesus. And if you haven't been able to make it to one of our campuses and participate in the time of giving, you could do so online through our website or by texting to give so that you can continue to participate in the mission that God has given us. We hope that God speaks to you through this sermon. God is infinite. He is eternal, all-powerful. God is Father, and He is good and loving, patient and long-suffering. These are just some of the things we've learned over the last few weeks as we have committed the summer to studying more about who God is. And today, we'll add to the list by talking through the idea that God is just. God is just. As I've been preparing for this sermon, I couldn't help but think back to a few weeks ago after I had spent 10 days on the East Coast with my family in a beautiful Hilton Head, South Carolina. It was gorgeous. Yes, fans of Hilton Head. Okay. Um, the Atlantic Ocean is awesome and warm and refreshing and just, you know, a little bit different temperature than the Pacific, but uh, it was an awesome vacation. But like all good things, uh, it had, to come, it had to come to an end and we had to get back to reality. And I, for some reason, decided to schedule a meeting at the very beginning of the day, my first day back in the office, which was a horrible idea because we had just gotten back in town the night before. And everyone in the house had a horrible night's sleep because if you've ever had to adjust to a time change, let alone a three-hour time change with a three-year-old and a one-year-old, it is the worst part of vacation and, uh, and so the morning started off chaotic. It started off stressful. I was already running late. I throw the boys in my car and we take off for Cornerstone. And because I was already running late and the responsibility in me doesn't want to be late for a meeting, I started doing what maybe a lot of people would do in that kind of situation. And I started driving faster than the posted speed limit. And I'm about halfway to Cornerstone, speeding through an intersection and I fail to notice the Livermore police officer that is about to make a right-hand turn headed in my same direction. So I stop at the next red light and I am anxiously, uh, nervously looking in my rearview mirror as I see this police officer uh, approaching from behind. But then at the last minute, he switches lanes and instead of flipping on his lights and pulling me over, he pulls up next to me. <laughs> Everything in me doesn't want to look, but I'm like, I kind of have to look, I guess. <laughs> so I look, and he just goes, like, slow down. <sighs> and I, like, have a sigh of relief, but also, like, embarrassment. I give him, like, a nod of, like, hey, thanks for the grace that you showed me, even though you didn't have to because I was intentionally breaking the law. And after sitting there for what felt like an eternity, <laughs> the light turns green, and I proceed the rest of the drive to Cornerstone, ensuring that I was going like right below the speed limit. But then just a few days later, I am walking to the park with my boys 
and a car goes zooming by us, like obviously speeding. And not more than 100 yards ahead was a Livermore police officer with his radar gun, and he pulls the car over. And my initial response at that moment was, serves you right, speeding with kids around. Like, what kind of an idiot does that? I'm glad you got a ticket. Don't judge me, you've done the same thing, okay? (laughs) See, these situations brought to light for me something I think we all desire in certain ways. We want grace for ourselves, but justice for everyone else. You see, the idea of a just God, it can be comforting on one hand and a little bit frightening on the other. Because if God is just, then it means that human beings should get what they deserve, but it also means that I should get what I deserve. And in the same breath, we know that God is gracious, meaning he gives us what we don't deserve, and he is merciful, meaning he doesn't give us what we do deserve. And so when we think of God's grace and God's mercy, it makes this concept of God being just a little bit hard for us to wrap our minds around especially because the idea of a just God, it brings to light two very important themes that we see about God in scripture, and that is his wrath and his love. Last weekend, Pastor Steve Matson walked us through the fact that God, he is not angry at us. The truth is God, he is loving and patient. He is long suffering toward us, always wanting to offer us forgiveness and hope and restoration. This picture of God in heaven, uh, just ready at any moment to like rain down fire and brimstone on disobedient human beings, like that's so far off from the reality of who God is. And in fact, if you weren't here last week and if you didn't hear the message, I'd encourage you to go back online, listen to it this week because the message you're about to hear today will feel incomplete without the framework of what we talked through last weekend. Last week was like part one, this is part two. And although last weekend we learned that God is not angry at us, an important thing we have to understand is that God is a God who does get angry. And the focus of his anger being sin. Now, many people in our current cultural landscape, both inside, outside of the church, they have a hard time. They have trouble with this idea of an angry God. Many people outside of the church, they'll read Bible passages where God gets angry and he judges people and they'll say, hey, that is exactly the reason why religion is so primitive and dangerous. Even those inside the church, many Christians uh, will, will want to tone down or even remove the doctrine of divine wrath altogether. It's seen as an embarrassment, something to be qualified or explained or reconstructed. I've been pastoring at Cornerstone for seven years now and I've had countless conversations with people on this topic and oftentimes I'll hear people say, well, the God of the Old Testament was was an angry God, full of wrath, but then Jesus came and he changed things. The God of the New Testament is a God of love. But as Pastor Steve showed us last week in God's love and his long suffering, it's evident both in the New Testament but also the Old Testament. And the same is true that God's wrath is evident both in the Old Testament and in the new. In fact, Jesus talked about God's wrath on many occasions throughout the gospels. Here's the words of Jesus in John chapter five. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. 
Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Jesus said this in John chapter 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Why is it that we skip over Jesus' words of judgment to dwell on his words of love? I think we're tempted to do what Thomas Jefferson did to his Bible. You see, Thomas Jefferson, he loved science, but he also loved Jesus. And Jesus' ethical code was spot on for Thomas Jefferson. However, he had a difficult time understanding the miracles of Jesus, understanding the supernatural stories that are told in the Gospels. And so Thomas Jefferson took his scissors and he literally cut out the passages of his Bible that transcended logical thought so that he could have the Jesus he wanted. And I think if we're honest... Right, It's easy for us to do the same. Maybe not literally, but we metaphorically take scissors and we cut out the passages of scripture, even the words of Jesus that are difficult, that are uncomfortable or confusing for us to understand. We just cut them out so that we too can have the God that we want. Integrating God's love and his wrath is difficult. And most people don't. They just choose one or the other but it's something that we must do in order to have a complete understanding of who God is. And so whether you are joining us live from one of our five campuses, whether you are watching online or you're reading this as a part of CF Inside, the question we have to ask ourselves is how do we do this? How do we integrate God's wrath with his love? And I think the best place to start is by defining as best we can exactly what God's wrath is. And so that's our goal for today. Let's get started. The first thing we need to understand when it comes to God's wrath is this. God's wrath is an action. It's an action. We'll often hear something like God is love, right? This is because love, it's the essence of who God is. Love is, is his very nature. But we never hear God is wrath, right? No one ever says that. That's because God's wrath is not something that God is. Instead, it's something that he does, God's wrath is an action. It is a response to the sin, to the evil that exists in our world. Right off the bat, it's important for us to realize that God's wrath is not a part of his character. Here's the second thing that we can learn. God's wrath is necessary. It's necessary. As we just learned, things like God's love and things like his holiness are part of his essential nature. Wrath, on the other hand, is contingent on human sin. Think about that. There was no, if there were no sin, there would be no need for God's wrath. Now, what do I mean when I say sin? Sin is a word we read over and over again in the Bible. And it's the Hebrew word kata, and its basic definition is to fail or to miss the goal, to miss the mark. What is it that sin is missing the goal of? Well, on page one of the Bible, we learn that every human being is an image of God, a sacred being who represents our creator and is deserving and worthy of respect. And in this way of seeing the world, sin is a failure to love God and to love others by not treating them with the honor that they deserve. Sin is anything that causes us, anything that causes others to fail, to miss the goal of what it means to be fully human. 
Sin is anything that, that causes us to miss the goal of what it means to fully be all that we were designed and created to be. And it's because of sin that God's wrath is necessary. Now, many people will say, you know what? I just, I can't believe in a God of wrath, right? And instead, we, we, we wanna cling to the idea of a teddy bear-like God, right? One who is warm and, and comforting, one who is loving and accepting and overlooks our sin and our shortcomings and our failures. However, in his book, The Good and Beautiful God, by James Bryan Smith, which this is a book we've referenced several times already in this series, so I'd encourage you, if you haven't read it, read it. It's a great book. James says this, the teddy bear God seems inviting at first, but when you look at our world or look deeply into your own heart, you see a darkness that is unmistakable. The non-wrathful God is powerless against this darkness. You see this darkness, it is so vividly apparent every time we hear about things like human trafficking or child abuse, murder, genocide. Like something in us just screams, this is not right, because it's not. It's not how things were designed to be. And as Smith said though, this darkness, it's also apparent when we look within our own hearts. See, we might say, well, you know what? I don't like the idea of a wrathful God because I'm, I'm basically a good person. I don't deserve God's wrath. But when we're honest and we look deep within our own hearts, we see that this darkness, it is apparent in our pride and in our selfishness. It's apparent in our judgment and our prejudice. It's apparent in our willingness to lie, to cheat, to betray, to manipulate, to take advantage of others. Like the list can go on and on and on. And none of this is how God designed humanity to be. And so God, yes, he is angry at sin because sin wreaks havoc on our lives. It destroys our peace. It damages our relationships. It distorts our thinking. It brings about shame and guilt. Sin poisons us to the depth of our souls. And humanity is hopeless in ridding ourselves of our sin. This is why we actually want a God of wrath. Because God's wrath, it is just. It is right. It is a necessary response to sin because he is adamantly opposed to anything that destroys people. Here's the third thing to realize. God's wrath, it is formed with care. When I hear the word wrath, I think of someone who moves like beyond anger and they have completely flown off the handle. Like they are just irrationally full of rage. I think of how I get when my three-year-old comes up me, to me from behind and bites me on the shoulder. <laughs> right? Like, ooh, I am just filled with rage. Why is it that little boys like biting people? It's the worst. <sighs> I just want to like file down his little teeth so he can never bite anything ever again. I won't do that, I promise. But the worst part is he thinks it's hilarious. He laughs at me. I'm like, ugh, ugh, ugh. Okay, just when he grows out of that phase, my second one will be in that phase. So pray for me because it's a long road ahead. Human wrath though, right? It's emotional. It is passion filled. We've all been there, but this is not an accurate understanding of God's wrath because God's wrath is not like human wrath. Rather, the Anchor Bible Dictionary defines God's wrath like this. The wrath of Yahweh is portrayed somewhat differently from human anger in the Hebrew Bible. In some respects, this is essentially the difference between passion and pathos. 
Passion can be understood as an emotional convulsion and a loss of self-control. Pathos, on the other hand, is an act formed with care and intention. It's the result of determination and decision. Okay, think about that for a moment. God's wrath is not this emotional-filled response where he has lost all self-control. No, God's wrath, it's a result of pathos. It is an intentional, thought-out decision that has been formed with care. God's wrath is difficult for us to wrap our heads around because oftentimes we compare it to uh, what we have experienced when it comes to human wrath. But to be honest, that comparison, it will fail us each and every single time. God's wrath is not like our wrath. His wrath is formed with care and intention. Here's the fourth thing. God's wrath is displayed in different ways. It's displayed in different ways. When we look at scripture, we see four possibilities for how God's wrath is often manifest, how it's often displayed. Uh, First is present. This is when God deals with evil right now on this side of judgment day. Like when God saw that Adam and Eve had sinned and they were cursed from that moment on. The second is future. This is when God uh, deals with evil later. What scripture calls the day of the Lord. Like what we read in Romans chapter two, where the apostle Paul writes, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed. The third is active. Uh, This is when God deals with evil directly, like an invisible but very real hand of God. And we see this a lot throughout scripture. Uh, Like in Exodus, for example, where God sends the 10 plagues in order to deliver the Israelites out of their slavery from the Egyptians. And then the last one is passive. This is when God does not act, and that is his judgment. He lets us do what we want to do and allows the consequences of our own sin to play out in our lives. In Romans chapter one, the apostle Paul describes this with words like God gave them over. He says God gave them over to their desires. God gave them over to their lust. God gave them over to their sin. It's when God steps back and he removes his protection and allows the consequences of our own sin, the consequences of our own evil to run their course. Our body is torn apart by our substance addiction, right? We get fired because we were cutting corners. Our view of the opposite sex is destroyed by pornography. Our kids grow up to hate us because of our anger. Our marriage is, is torn apart because of the affair. Now here's the important thing to realize. Most of God's wrath is either future active or present passive. Future active or present passive. Future active being, meaning that one day God will act decisively and he will put an end to the evil, to the sin that is in our world forever. God's wrath, it will justify, it will make right everything that is wrong in our world and it will restore everything that sin has damaged and destroyed in humanity and in all of creation. That's future active. But in the meantime, God's way of dealing with sin is usually present passive. To step back and let the effects of sin be its own punishment and obedience 
its own reward. Here's the final point we're gonna look at today. God's wrath is proof of his love. God's wrath is proof of his love. I know, it kind of sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? It's because it's easy to view God's wrath as being opposite his love. Right, we think of, of God's love and God's wrath as being like oil and water. They just don't mix. But in the book, Hope Has Its Reasons, author Rebecca Pippert, she says this. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, to the cancer of evil that is rotting out, eating out the insides of the human race that he loves with his whole being. Think about it like this. Would a God who does not act out against evil in the world be a good God? Could a God who is indifferent to sin, even though he knows that sin destroys his children, could that God be a loving father? I remember when I was in middle school and a new family moved onto our street. They had a daughter, uh, Kelly, who was a year older than my sister, Christine, and two years older than me. And the three of us quickly became good friends. Kelly's parents didn't give her uh, any rules. I mean, she didn't have a curfew. She never was grounded. She never was given any restrictions. When she turned 16, she was given a car and had the freedom to go wherever she wanted and do whatever she wanted whenever she wanted to. And I would think, man, your parents are so cool. Like, they don't care about you at all. <sighs> My folks, on the other hand, man, they had rules and restrictions for like every single thing under the sun. One day I'm 14 and the three of us are hanging out. And like all brilliant teenagers, we had the grand idea uh, that it would be wise for myself and my sister Christine to drive Kelly's car. Even though we were not licensed drivers, we were not even permitted drivers. So I'm driving around town and I'm feeling pretty confident, you know, in my, uh, yeah, I didn't like start off in the parking lot. You're like, yeah, let's just go. I'm feeling pretty confident in my driving abilities, right? All of a sudden I see a car coming towards us from the other lane, from the other side, going the opposite direction. And I make eye contact with the driver and it's a lady that we go to church with. And there was no denying, no mistaking who was driving the car, right? I'm like, 14-year-old Becky. And in that moment, I knew we were so busted. By the time we get home, the lady had already called my mom. And my parents were just waiting for Christine and I to get home. In my 14 years of life, I had never seen my parents so angry. I don't even think I've seen them that angry since. I remember my mom telling me how, I believe she used the word idiotic of a decision that was. And that stuck out to me because we were not allowed to say stupid or any idiot or anything like that. 
She said, I can't believe how idiotic of a decision you made. You could have severely hurt or even killed yourself, your sister, your friend, other people. What were you thinking? And my parents, they brought the hammer down hard. I even called my mom and my sister this week to like fact, fact check the story. I'm like, is this what I remembered? And they're like, oh yeah, that sounds about right. See, this happened in August at the end of summer. And our consequence was that Christine and I were grounded until Thanksgiving. Yeah, right? Some of you parents who have like teenagers that complain about your consequences, you're like, I'm gonna have them watch this sermon, right? They won't complain again. Yeah, just be like, I'll call Pastor Becky's mom. She'll give me ideas for consequences if you don't like this one. They're like, no, no. And I remember being so frustrated at my parents because I thought they were being completely unreasonable. I mean, it's not like I crashed the car. It's not like I hurt anyone, right? Nothing bad happened. And I remember talking to my friend Kelly afterwards and I will never forget what she said to me. I was complaining to her about how severe my parents were being and she looks me in the eye and she says, well, at least you know that your parents love you. I mean, she knew in that moment what I had not realized. A loving parent is not one who gives their children endless freedom. A loving parent is not one who lets them do whatever they want without consequence. I mean, she knew from example because she didn't have parents like this that a loving parent will point their child away from things that can hurt them, things that will wreck their lives, even if it means correction and consequences and pain and anger. And now that I'm a parent, I totally understand this. This is why I will yell at Hudson when he's running into the street. I will yell at him when he is being careless around fire. And sometimes it will make him cry and he'll come to me and he'll say, mama, you yelled at me. And I say, yes, I did yell at you. Because what kind of mother would I be if I wasn't willing to point you away from the things that hurt you? And so today I've come to realize, even though I don't fully understand it, even though there's passages of scripture where I read and I see God's wrath on display and I'm like, that just doesn't make sense. That just, I don't, I don't, I, I don't get it. It's confusing. It's challenging. I've come to the place where I don't actually want a God who is without wrath because a God who is without wrath is not a loving God. A God who is without wrath is not a loving God. I don't want a God who is soft on my sin. I don't want a God who is indifferent towards my sin because he knows that sin will destroy me. He knows my sin will prevent me from being the best, most complete, fulfilling version of myself, all that he has designed me to be. This is why God's wrath, it is not in opposition to his love. It is proof of it. And there is perhaps no greater evidence of this than the cross, where God's ultimate response of wrath was to unleash evil on himself. He absorbed it so that he could forgive, he could heal, he could restore it. In Matthew 26, we read about the night before Jesus was crucified. He's in the garden of Gethsemane, and this is the prayer that he prays 
to his heavenly father, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. You see, in this moment, Jesus is in incredible agony and anguish, so much so that scriptures tell us he is sweating drops of blood. And the cup he is referring to here was a cup that was talked about all throughout the Old Testament. It's called the cup of God's wrath. In Jeremiah 25, it says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations whom I send you drink it. The prophet Isaiah writes, awake, awake, rise up Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. On this night when Jesus prayed this prayer in Gethsemane, just moments later, the Jewish leaders came to arrest Jesus and Peter, his disciple, drew his sword and chopped off a guy's ear and Jesus responds in John 18. And he says this, it says, verse 11, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? You see, the cup of wrath that these passages talk about, it was meant for us. It was a cup we were supposed to drink because of our sin, because of our mistakes, because of the evil that is within our own hearts. But as Jesus hung up on the cross, he drank the cup of God's wrath on our behalf for you and for me. You see, the cross is where the justice and the mercy of God collide. And as Pastor Steve said last weekend, God sent his son Jesus to be the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our lives so that you and I never have to suffer God's wrath. God's wrath is very real, but he has made a way for us to not have to drink that cup. So what does this mean for us? Well, when it comes to God's wrath, we have two options. And there's only two options. We can either drink the cup of, of wrath that we deserve, or we can believe in the one who drank it on our behalf. But we have to choose it. There's no middle ground. And if you've never made the choice to believe to believe in, in, in Jesus, the one who drank the cup on your behalf, I would encourage you to not let another day go by without making that decision. We'll have people up front, a prayer team on all of our campuses who would love to pray with you and talk with you and let today be your day where you make the decision to accept what Christ has done for you, where you accept the forgiveness and the restoration that he offers you as you surrender your life to him. But if you are someone who has made that decision to believe, you've already made that choice to follow Jesus, to believe in the one who drank the cup of God's wrath on your behalf, then I wanna challenge you to realize that with belief comes obedience. Several years ago when I used to be a youth pastor here at Cornerstone, I remember grabbing lunch with uh, one of my female volunteers at the time. 
She was a single gal in college. And uh, we spent a few minutes on small talk, just catching up since the last time we had gotten together. And then she started uh, telling me about a sermon she had recently heard. And it was probably a sermon that was similar to the one Pastor Steve gave last weekend uh, about how God is not angry at us. And instead he is good and he is loving and he offers us this incredible, immeasurable grace and forgiveness. And she started telling me how this sermon had really helped her because she had been feeling guilty about living a sexually active lifestyle with, with her previous boyfriends as well as with her current boyfriend. But now she knows that God forgives her and he looks past that sin. And so she can continue on living in that same way without needing to feel guilty about it anymore. I remember in that moment, like my heart just sunk. Because here she had heard of God's incredible love for her. She had heard of God's incredible grace and mercy and forgiveness that he freely offers to her and she totally missed the point. God's grace and God's love for us is not so that God can just overlook our sins. Yes, God has incredible love for us and there will never be anything that we could ever think or or do or imagine that would put us out of the reach of his grace. There is never anything that we could do that forgiveness could not still cover. But God's grace and his love, it isn't only meant to forgive us our sins. To say Jesus died on the cross to forgive me our sins, that's only half the story. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, the apostle Paul says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus's work on the cross was not so that we could just keep on living lives however we wanted to. Jesus did not drink the cup of God's wrath so that we could uh, continue on doing whatever it is we wanted. No, Jesus' work on the cross was so that, yes, we could be forgiven of our sins, but we could also be justified. We could also be made right so that we could become the righteousness of God. In the rest of that conversation with that girl, as well as follow-up conversations, we talked about the fact that the gospel is not just about forgiveness, but also about restoration. And this is why obedience is such an important response for us. Because God says, hey, I am not content with you being an incomplete version of yourself. I'm not content with you being a version of yourself that consistently settles for falling short of all that you were created and designed to be. And so obedience is our necessary response because God wants to completely restore us. Thankfully, she came to seeing that continuing on with that behavior, simply because she knew she was forgiven, that was not what God's best for her was. You see, God, he forgives our injustice, but it's always with the intent to restore us to justice. I'll close with this. You gotta know, I by no means have this all figured out. I mean, there are so many aspects of God's wrath and God's justice um, that I still don't understand. I'll read scripture, I'll, 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 I'll look out at the world around me and I'll see the brokenness and the sin that 
and the evil that still exists. And I have so many questions. But even though I don't fully understand it, I've come to a place where I can trust it. Because I believe at the end of it all, when God's justice has been completed and all has been made right, that we'll look at that end result and we'll say, okay, God, that is good. That is fair. That is satisfactory. All of the questions and the concerns and the doubts I had about your wrath, it all makes sense now. Because God's wrath and his justice, they are working right alongside his grace and his mercy. All of those things are a part, they are a sign of who God is. All of those things, they flow from his character, from the essence of his love, his great love that he has for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love. And we also thank you for your justice, for your wrath, because both are necessary for us in order to restore us to who you are always, who you always designed us to be. God, I thank you that you are such a loving father that you don't just overlook our sins. You don't just forgive us our sins, but you challenge us to turn from our sins, to repent, to respond to the work that you've done on our behalf with grateful obedience. So that you can restore us to be the righteousness of God. God, I pray for anyone in this room, anyone hearing my voice who's never made the decision to follow you, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would be moving on their hearts and you would draw them into you. God, today that would be the day, their day, where they make a decision to surrender their life to you. God, I pray for anyone in this room, anyone who hears my voice, who has an area of their life that they have received your forgiveness for, but They've allowed that to be the reason why they can continue living that way. Instead of allowing that to be the reason while they, while they turn and they pursue obedience. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move in their hearts right now and that you would draw them closer in and you would give them the courage and the bravery to know what steps they need to take in order to move towards that obedience. We love you, Father. And it's in the, your mighty name that we pray.